It feels like Belize is burning. Fields are burning everywhere. Parallel to the coronavirus epidemic, we also have an emergency in the Kaya district that needs to be addressed. The Kaya district really is in a state of emergency on its own. We can't breathe. We can't sleep at night. I couldn't sleep for many nights because of the smoke that's happening. The smoke was affecting so much um, people considering that poor air quality basically would have made the fight against COVID-19 so much harder. You don't want to start any fire in April. Believe me, you don't want to do that. That is very, very dangerous. Hello, and welcome to The Gray Spaces, a podcast and blog dedicated to exploring the hazy overlaps of history, culture, politics, and society in Belize. I'm your host, Andre Marsden. In this episode, we'll be talking about slash-and-burn farming and how it has contributed to an environmental and health hazard that's been affecting several districts in Belize. We'll talk about this farming method's place in our history and its future possibilities. We'll also be talking about the quick response by the government and how it has had an unintended effect on the livelihoods of some Belizeans. You're listening to The Gray Spaces. There are two facts. Smoke hazards have become an issue for residents in the western and southern districts of Belize, and recent responses to deal with that issue has affected the livelihoods of Mayan milpa farmers. While all the average Belizean might know about farming as growing tomatoes in our yards, there are 42 villages in Toledo alone who depend on milpa farming and who are affected by the new restrictions. Mark Miller, executive director of Plenty Belize, explains. You've got to think for someone who is at subsistence level farming. Their farming is important to feed their families as well as to make some small income, but the feeding the family comes first. One of the biggest factors leading up to the problem affecting western and southern Belize lately has been an unusually early dry season. The months of March to May are typically a transition period for Belize. The wet season turns into dry season, and we sometimes get a bit of rain here and there before the real dry season starts. But according to the National Met Service's monthly weather summary, that last bit of rain here and there was on the weekend of March 9th. The website Weather Underground tells a similar story for the month of April, with a graph for precipitation showing a flat line at zero. And not only is it drier, it's hot too. Nearly across the board, every weather station the Met Service observes tells the same story for March, above average high temperatures with very little difference in low temperatures. This doesn't include the April data, but with the weeks in that month so far varying between 100 and 110 degrees Fahrenheit during the day, Conditions have been intolerable. Yeah, every year in Belize we have these fires. People prepare their fields. Uh, but this year, because of the drought that we had last year, and the drought that we have now, so much vegetation is, is dry. Jan Meerman is technical advisor for the monitoring of biodiversity and climate change in Belize. He was one of the first to raise public awareness of the conditions in the Cayo district. On April 13th, 
Jan put up a Facebook post which included data from purpleair.com, showing the levels of measured particulate matter, the scientific term for the stuff in the air that we breathe, that was being picked up by the sensor he has on his roof in Belampan. It's a very complex thing, of course. It is electronics, but um, it's relatively cheap as things go, and it is extremely maintenance-free. So that's an ideal, an ideal measurement tool. The air quality data is even color-coded, which makes them pretty easy to interpret. At the time of his first Facebook post, the level was red, suggesting that the air quality was dangerously poor. Four days later, the same measurement tool registered as purple. The air was unbreathable and detrimental to human health. The only thing is, people complain, and is it really that bad? Now, for the first time, I believe we have actually data to say, yes, it's bad. And like anything else, unless you have data, uh, you can't prove anything. As other voices chimed in, it caught the attention of the national media and the government. Days after Jan Meerman's initial post, the government issued Statutory Instrument Number 59 of 2020 in an effort to cut back on fires producing smoke in the area. This particular piece of legislation made it fairly clear what the government considered the problem to be. It stated that burning of bush, milpa, agricultural field, pasture, grass, or vegetation of any type during the state of emergency would be punishable by a fine of up to $5,000 or imprisonment of up to two years. Light a fire, go to jail. And that second item on the list of prohibited burning, milpas, is of particular concern. While the Department of the Environment has addressed one problem by banning burning of fires, it means that milpa farmers are now unable to continue with their process of farming, because burning fields or slash and burn is an intrinsic part of the process of milpa farming. Here is Toledo Alcalde Association President Juan Cocul explaining more. When we do it yearly, we chop a huge area, we burn it, and then we plant so that we do not depend on anywhere to supply us. We supply our own, you know, our own family. So hence the reason we do our slash and burn every year. There's nothing else more important for sustaining ourselves because if we depend to buy our food somewhere else, and if it runs short, we will struggle. We will go hungry. Let's say if we get our, if we get jobs somewhere else, and if we lose our job, where else can we find to sustain our families? So we find it very, very important that we produce our own food in our own home, feed our families. Mark Miller is also a board member of Regeneration Belize. He and the organization he's affiliated with work with farmers in southern Belize and is quite familiar with the process. It relies on burning down the organic matter into an ash that's been growing for years, and the soil in that area, because of the plants growing in that area, was um, rich soil. But after it's burned, gen uh, traditionally you would get a crop out of that good soil mixed with that good ash, and then you would move on to a next space. And when there was lots of space between people, 
that really wasn't a problem. And by definition, it was actually sustainable because you weren't adding in outside resources. You didn't have to bring in fertilizers and other things to make it happen. We also spoke to Alfonso Sul, who's been involved in agriculture since he was 10, working fields and growing food with his father in their traditional way. He's 79 now and retired from his job in the Department of Agriculture, but he still tends to a relatively small food garden in San Antonio. Now what do you do if you do not have more land? The only solution is to burn the field. When you burn the field, you take care of the pests and other little insects that bother you for a short time. After that, you're going to deal with it again and again and again. It's a cycle. It's a vicious one, too. Let's take a moment for a little bit of history. At the height of the Mayan civilization, there were city-states with populations larger than any we've achieved in modern-day Belize, and their food production and trade would have rivaled our modern industries. We're talking about a people that developed techniques specifically suited for this part of the world. By the time the historical documents start referring to the settlement in the Bay of Honduras, those living in the settlement were in pretty bad shape. According to Asad Showman's 13 chapters of A History of Belize, the superintendent of British Honduras reported that, of agriculture in British Honduras, little that is satisfactory can be said. And in a later account, a chief justice complained that the settlement was far from self-sustainable and depended on imports from America and England for food. That year, 1847, was also the year the caste wars began. In Spanish-held territories, the indigenous Mayan people began to revolt against those who occupied their traditionally held lands. The conflict and the reason for it were much more complex than that, but a result was an increased Mayan presence in British Honduras. In 1852, the British Honduras superintendent had changed his tune, all thanks to immigrants from the Yucatan. Traditional knowledge of the land had led to the cultivation of agricultural products, including tobacco, corn, and even sugar, in great amounts. By 1857, the Mayan population had mostly taken over logwood cutting, but many more had established their milpas. They produced food on these milpas that fed a few families at first, but eventually developed into sizes that could feed entire communities. Two years later, British Honduras was exporting. The backwater settlement in the Bay of Honduras was contributing to the global economy, and Mayan farming techniques had made it possible. Over the next century or so, income from intentional industrial agriculture as opposed to simply ravaging the forest for century-old trees, proved way too attractive for foreign investors to pass up. Money started rolling in, and those looking to earn a living wage typically flocked to those large industries, including some of the milperos themselves. Even Mayan descendants realized that a milpa was really good for putting food on tables, but not that good at putting money in your pocket. And then, in the middle of the 20th century, after global economic fluctuations, after world wars, and after political upheavals, the foreign money went away. 
and the prosperity of the laborers, what little they were allowed, went away with it. But there was always a fallback. As a nation, milpas weren't just our gateway into agricultural prosperity. It's been a safety net for Mayan communities and for pretty much everyone in Belize. In Belize, milpa farming works within a tight cycle. The clearing of the land is followed by burning and then planting, which is all regulated by nature. If one of the steps is missed, the entire cycle might be compromised, and with it, the crops that farmers were hoping to grow for the year. Even though milpa farming using slash and burn has been used for centuries, that's also centuries in which Belize and the world have been changing. Here's Mark Miller again to explain. Traditionally, they might let the land sit for 10 years. So you would burn a couple of acres and grow, and then you'd do a different two acres and a different two acres. And so you would run 20 acres, but only do two a year. But it's harder to have that much space now. It puts too much pressure on the land with our increased population. And space isn't the only problem. Our own population growth and increased dependence on tourism is also driving the demand for homegrown food beyond the limits of traditional farming. So what do we do about it? A retired agriculture officer and traditional Maya farmer, Alfonso Sul, has some thoughts about that. The slash and burn system, as I see it, has its own use, and it can be continued. The problem and the challenge with this is the lack of understanding on the part of those who use it. If they would be more careful, it wouldn't be a serious problem. We usually have a stretch of five weeks, four to five weeks, of steady dry without a drop of rain. That is not the time to burn anything. Things get so dry that the fire will run very, very easily, even where you feel that there is not enough garbage for the fire to run away. So one thing that people can do is to clear their land before that heavy, dry condition comes to exist. And that would mean restricting the clearing and burning of land before the 30th of March. Mr. Sul also pointed out that his recommendations may have some drawbacks. Even if a more controlled burning can be done in March, planting can't be done until May, which leaves a large window for weeds and pests to take hold. They don't respect dry weather. Many people don't know that. Crops might not grow, but weeds will grow. Mark Miller offers other alternatives that might be able to help with that problem, like cover cropping, for instance. And, and, and any kind of cover crop, but especially legumes. Legumes put nitrogen back in the soil and, and, and um, enrich the soil that way. And then the cover crop helps keep weeds down um, and gives you something that you can chop and mulch for afterwards. So planting a legume cover crop achieves similar outcomes as slash and burn. It removes unwanted plants that compete for space, and it introduces nutrients directly to the soil. And right now, there's one legume cover crop that's finding success in southern Belize. You can also plant in a variety of different types of beans, and Makuna is a well-researched and 
and actually has become fairly popular, being that it, it will start to grow as well. And actually, in my recent discussions with farmers in the Toledo district, many, many, and I would even go as saying the majority at this time, are using that mulch system for a second crop on their same land. And in certain African countries, it's even being grown as an animal fodder during times of drought, like the one we're facing in Belize right now. Makuna bean could be the answer to a lot of our agricultural problems right now. I would say at this point, the majority are having a second crop without having to burn a second time by using the same land. We've been talking about it for close to 20 years, and people are adapting. Miller explains that another possibility comes in the form of Inga alley cropping. Inga edulis is a a, a tree or a shrub, and it's also nitrogen-fixing. And you, you grow them in rows, leaving a space in between to grow your, your crops. When you trim them, use them as mulch to grow your crops in between. This was first shown in Toledo by Maya Mountain Research Farm. And Yaxche Conservation Trust has taken it and run with it very hard in showing farmers around Toledo this technique. But if these alternatives exist and come with such wonderful added benefits... Why aren't more farmers adopting them? One answer might be what economists refer to as risk aversion. Investors may be hesitant to make a change if they feel unsure of a positive result. The main reason farmers don't change is what I did fed my family and put a little money in my pocket. This new thing, that sounds nice, but I've been told lots of things that sound nice and some of them didn't work. We were told that we could grow habaneros and there was a market for them. Then when we grew our habaneros, there was no market suddenly. So every time somebody comes in and disappoints a farmer, it makes them slower to adopt what anyone else says that's new. There's another economic term that may be at play here as well. Barriers to entry. When the expense of trying something new is so high... It feels like you're being blocked out. And for farmers, money isn't the only type of resource they have to manage. There's also time that needs to be considered. And not many have time to wait for something like a couple rows of Inga trees to grow or for leaves to turn into mulch. If you take time, then the cost isn't high because you can propagate one tree and then the next and so on and and, and build yourself out your nice stock. Um, but it's not an overnight fix. Most of agriculture doesn't isn't overnight anyway. Farmers need to think in many years. And finally, an industry-wide change like this requires there to be some sort of effort and investment put behind it. The Ministry of Agriculture is working alongside Regeneration Belize and has a couple of very active members, but I don't know of any formal programs or projects by government specifically aimed at the milpa farmer and how to reduce burning. There are quite a number of organizations that have been working with our milpa farmers for more than a decade to encourage and to educate about some of these other methods. There's always a hope by the educated that education alone turns into behavior change, but that's not necessarily true. And it's even more difficult when part of it is 
worries about your family's well-being. But as my grandfather would say, keep up. Because change might be just around the corner. I cleared my land, slash and burn to begin with. But I have never um, used fire after that. I only used it once. And that is the thing that I'm trying to teach people in, in my village, San Antonio, that you do not need to keep on and burning every year. We have seen some behavior change in that we've seen the, the adopting of the, the slash and mulching system for second crops and beyond. We need to support more farmers in adopting not just that, but in other systems. Because a farmer will trust their neighboring farmer who's doing well much better than they'll trust someone whose job it is to convince you to do something different. While milpa farming might slowly evolve in the near future, adapting alternatives and modifications that require less slash and burn, these measures will take time. When complaints flooded social media and hospitals started receiving patients, the Department of the Environment couldn't afford to wait. They had to take swift measures to stop the problem. Here's Minister Omar Figueroa. That, that burning was stopped temporarily is because, listen, people were going, the hospitals were being overwhelmed. People are, are, are going there with asthmatic problems, with breathing problems. We had to do something. You, we have to understand that the burning is affecting other people. They issued Statutory Instrument 59, essentially making it illegal to set any fires in the entire country. It seemed reasonable at the time that milpas that relied on slash and burn should be included in that list, due to the assumption that they led to uncontrolled fires. The SI was just developed in direct response to the fact that uh, the smoke uh, content in the air was reaching levels that were really dangerous. It was unbreathable. So we had to act quickly. Uh, it is not an SI that is intended to remain in effect. Environmental officer Anthony Mai however, states that the data collected cannot say for sure what are the sources of those fires. He says that the government responded to various hotspots for smoke hazards around the country. Well, we have been receiving reports of a lot of fires, especially like last week, I would say. It was Orange Rock District, the Cayo District in terms of Bonopan, and the Vaca era. Those were the hotspots. But when asked why the cane farmers were given an exception to burn sugarcane fields, he said... Well, I personally, at my um, level, I would not be able to speak on that. That would, the question is more suitable for the ministry. So we asked Minister Omar Figueroa, who has portfolio over the Department of the Environment. The way the, the, the cane farming operates, man, we would have halted the entire sugar industry up north if we had stopped them from burning. If you don't allow the, the, the cane farmers to burn, you essentially bring that industry to a halt because they burn before they harvest their cane to deliver to the factory. Small milpa farms of a few acres each were being stopped from continuing their cycles, albeit temporarily. These milpas are critical for feeding families and communities, but don't contribute as much to the national economy as big industries like sugar. Meanwhile, large areas of industrial-grown sugar were given an exception and allowed to keep burning. According to Toledo Alcalde Association President Juan Cocul, this exception is breeding some contention. If the northern people got the permission to produce their sugar cane, it is the same thing with our corn and beans. We need it here, 
so that we can sustain our families. While SI-59 restricts slash-and-burn farming to avoid fire hazards, there are some who think these fires are the result of other types of activity. Retired Agriculture Officer Alfonso Sul. The third group that I am worried about are the hunters. There are a few hunters in Belize who make a living by hunting animals, especially deer, so they go and burn any area which they believe will, will produce young shoots of grass for the animals, and then they go hunting there. So without you care, they start a fire like that in April, and it grows into something extraordinary like the ones we have in San Ignacio. The effects of SI-59 are hard felt for farmers that depend on their produce. Under ideal circumstances, as main stakeholders, the farmers should have been consulted to develop the legislation. Given the state of, 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 the, of the current affairs, the fact that we're in a state of emergency, I mean, it's not possible to go out and consult with every single village that utilizes slash and burn. You need to understand that most of these fires are actually escaped from man-made fires. And so something had to be done immediately. According to the minister... SI-59 was developed to swiftly deal with an environmental and public health problem and was never meant to be permanent. But how should our nation's leaders develop a proper plan for the future? Is it necessary for one group of Belizeans to benefit at the expense of another? Or is there a way to pass legislation that takes into account the needs of all citizens? We had a conversation with Daryl Bradley, attorney, former mayor of Belize City, and currently the president of the Belize Senate, to understand more about regulating a complex issue like milpa farming and slash and burn. Well, I think that any time any government policy is taken into effect, it has to be a balance. You do want to ensure that you are respecting the economic livelihood and cultural practices of particular groups including the indigenous Mayan communities who are very valuable to Belize's national identity. But you also want to have a balance between environmental concerns. So the best practice always is to develop policies and legislation in consultation with those affected. Bradley talked about the importance of taking everyone's well-being into consideration when passing a law that affects their lives. TAA President Juan Cucul agrees. It is very, very important that they should consult with us first as the leader, the leaders in each villages. Uh, they should come and say, well, this is what we want to do, and it will, will be okay for you all. And solving this problem for the long run may require equal parts compassion, compromise, and patience. Going forward, just this morning, I was in a, in a meeting with my CEO, and, I, and, and we now need to, to go back to the drawing board and going forward, make sure we defined everything again in detail because the, the SOE has been extended beyond April 30th. But it, it can't be done haphazardly. It needs to be organized. It needs to be staggered across the country so that we know where these burnings are taking place. And we need to come up with the plan quickly. I believe it's moving in that direction. I think we need to continue moving it in that direction. But we need to accept that this isn't going to be solved this dry season or next dry season. Probably not the one after that, but it will as we move forward as a people. Things have been developing quickly, even in the time that we were putting the story together. In Bamapan, 
a crop duster is now being used to douse bushfires in the area surrounding the city, though there are still some reports of fields burning in nearby villages. Meanwhile, volunteers have been organizing to fight uncontrolled fires spreading in Belize's southern districts. These fires are now spreading to established farms and plantations, where the losses due to damage have been calculated in millions of dollars. And that piece of legislation, SI-59, was supposed to be for only 10 days, the length of the state of emergency. Now the government has extended the state of emergency for an extra 60 days, and SI-59 still remains in place, so farmers cannot legally return to their farming. Today's show was written by Andre Marsden with contribution from Ingrid Furlow. Special thanks to Mark Miller of Plenty Belize, retired agriculture officer Alfonso Sul, Senate President Darrell Bradley, senior environmental officer Anthony Mai, chief agriculture officer Andrew Harrison, Minister Omar Figueroa, and president of the Toledo Alcalde Association, Mr. Juan Cuco. The music used for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and Gilman Mom. If you enjoyed today's show, feel free to reach out to us and let us know. You can find us on Facebook as The Gray Spaces, on Twitter and Instagram as Spaces Gray and Spaces Gray 501, and you can check us out at grayspaces501.blogspot.com, where you can find photographs, additional information, and discussions that don't quite fit into our episodes. I've been your host, Andrew Marsden, and you've been listening to The Gray Spaces.